we are actually too poor in india that we do not discuss religion in universities because if you go to cambridge if you go to oxford i mean i'm just taking i'm not saying that they are great by definition but i'm saying these are the great institutions that the left things are great okay you take princeton you take harvard you take stanford wherever you will always have departments of divinity studies or you will have departments of religion studies it's only in india that we don't have these okay as a result of this you can have this sort of a poster okay where obviously uh, um, you know a tall politician is being depicted as krishna but he is krishna there's no doubt about it because notice that peacock feather on his crown okay the geeta is uh, in his left hand he is holding uh, the lotus in his hand and he is twirling the parliament uh, with his right index finger and he is um, you know he is uh, you know he is stepping on human skulls uh, which is uh, i i was i was actually very surprised that uh, you know only this sort of an interpretation of the geeta is possible in jnu Namaste to all of you who are here. Uh, I am Arunodaya Majumdar, and uh, I'm going to talk about why I left uh, leftism in JNU. Uh, as the topic itself, uh, you know, the title of the talk, as it suggests, it is going to be somewhat of a personal talk because I'm going to share that how. i almost i had a decade long association with independent left movement um, in in india and particularly uh, from calcutta and in calcutta and delhi and then uh, you know a more general uh, and a more impersonal view of what uh, leftism in india is and how you know it it needs to be encountered by those who do not um you know subscribe to 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 its uh, ideologies uh, just just one thing i'm not going to treat this as a left right sort of a debate and in fact uh, you know one i i'll i'll come uh, you know as i progress with the talk that there's a particular moment where i'm going to say that you know you know we should get out of this left right debate because the left identifies itself as right and they define anybody who is not left as right but do we define ourselves as right that's an important question that we need to ask and i don't think we should let others define what we are so uh, with that i think i'm going to start with so what i've done is i have uh, you know in this slide i'll quickly introduce you to the talk structure that is how i've structured my talk and uh, as you would remember the title of the talk is why i left leftism in jnu so the first part is going to be a personal account of who is the i who am i and how did i get uh, you know how was i uh, you know attracted to leftism and how how did i get involved in it the next is a note on why why did i leave okay that's that's the next part of it the third is what after i left what did i do after i leave what am i still doing after i have left and fourth is a note on leftism in bharat india that is a note on leftism and what are the broader things it actually stands for 
whether it's Orientalism, modernism that I call, what are its relations with colonialism and neo-colonialism. These are the things uh, that uh, that I take up at, at the fourth part. That's a, that's slightly more, uh, you know, uh, technical, uh, but I'm sure that we have a very august audience who is used to these terms and will be able to, uh, you know, uh, educate me on it when we have the Q&A. Uh, session as well. So I'll start with who the I is and give you a brief introduction about who am I and how did I get introduced to leftism. So I grew up uh, actually in a family in Calcutta and, uh, in, uh, you know, as, as it used to be, you know, I was growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s when the uh, left front rule was pretty much, uh, you know, on top at the pinnacle in West Bengal and nobody thought that they are going to go anywhere until, uh, you know, they made certain mistakes. Uh, so, you know, there was great family influence. This is how it actually begins. There was great family influence in the sense that on my maternal side, I had my uncles who were like, uh, members of the party, okay, who were who were trade unionists and uh, who were there in the education system. My mother herself was a very strong uh, supporter of the Communist uh, Party of India. And on my paternal side, I, I grew up in a joint family. So not in the traditional sense of the joint family where you all stay together and share the earth, but it was more like separate households, but you had regular contact uh, and regular interaction. So I grew up in such a family and I had I had one of my grandfathers, I mean my my own granddad's brother, and then one of my grandmothers, okay, who were who were not only very, very staunchly left, but were also uh, one of them was also pretty much uh, I wouldn't say a natural sympathizer, but uh, you know, pretty much uh, involved, let's say, at least in the discourse that surrounded naturalism, the romance of naturalism, particularly at that time. So as a young boy who was growing up, these were the you know influences that I that I was coming across, and uh, and and it was I mean it's it's not that I look back upon them with with rejection or with a deep sense of uh, you know regret. It's not that because you you are socialized as someone who grows up in such a family, okay, to to look at it positively. I mean you of course don't get to know about the Stalins and the Maos and their cultural revolutions and and the gulags, you don't get to know about those because these are, you know, these are left out of the talks. I mean, I wonder if it, even if uh, they themselves, uh, you know, remember it or if they themselves know it, of course, the ones who are professors would probably know, but uh, my my uncle is a professor of the natural sciences. I don't think, even if he knew, he has forgotten by now, or he has made himself forget these unsavory things. Uh, but uh, that is that is the growing up part, and so much so that that for my first election that I voted, I actually remember that I think I can say I actually voted for a red party. So uh, nothing nothing surprising about that uh, because uh, it was my first vote, and it usually comes not very politically conscious, just out of school. Okay, not even into college. I remember it was that that moment when I voted first, voted for the first time, and uh, that's when I voted actually red. Uh, and I'll now take you to, you know, way back. This was this was in 2004, and I'll now take you to 2010 when I actually arrived in New Delhi, uh, and I found something which is more liberal. Again, I have relatives, I have friends in New Delhi, 
and I came across this, uh, you know, large number of people, okay, where there was there was a distinct change, okay, and they were absolutely anti-communism. Uh, Although left liberal, it goes together these days, and there are reasons why it does, which I'll lay down in the end of my uh, talk. But at that point in time, I met a completely new set of people, okay, with whom I was hanging out, with whom who would influence me. And these set of people were, were literally liberal. And what do I mean by liberal? It meant that number one, okay, they were strong pro-market people. They wanted the state to get out. Classical distinction between left and liberal is what uh, defined them. So they were definitely someone who wanted the market to take over. They were absolutely happy with liberalization, privatization and globalization, not critics of it. And more importantly, um, their their sense of culture or their sense of uh, what is it to be uh, you know culturally sound would always you know would always look towards the west so you were you had to so when i when i was in delhi i actually picked up uh, you know learning uh, english music because i had i i knew very little of it okay so i i only knew by brian adams and enrique iglesias and all of that but then i had to in order to fit into the new crowd that i was uh, meeting i had to know about the rest of the people uh, okay so uh, like the favorite used to be pink floyd and metallica and all these all these uh, people so but there was almost a peer pressure okay to be that sort of a thing so this is this is basically how you know i experienced both when i was growing up i experienced both the leftist side of the things and when i was when i came to delhi i experienced uh, what would what would one say a bit more of a breathing space a little bit of a liberal space where you were uh, experimenting with new things but obviously okay i mean you still didn't know the underlines of these things okay and uh, one of the reasons why why my leftism my 10 year or even 12 years from 18 almost to the age of 30 why why i was uh, you know very very connected uh, to leftism was also because of the educational institutions that i attended and i would like to go to the next slide for this um so that i can uh, tell you yeah okay who is the i is actually the first slide where i just took you through you know growing up in a communist uh, kolkata and what my maternal family and paternal family's influences were then a move to family and friends you know in liberal new delhi that's what the thing was but in the middle okay i just want to talk a bit about the educational institutions and the workplaces that i attended and what was the impact of that on my um you know my structure of, of of intellectual development okay so the first name would be of would not surprise i went to presidency college for my uh, undergraduate degree a, a lot of you would know it not only for its academic excellence but also because of the fact that it was also the birthplace in many ways of urban naxalism uh you know i mean uh, it it started in a village close to Darjeeling called Naxalbari, but uh, the fact that it took over, uh, you know, and spread through urban West Bengal was because of the contributions, so to say, of a few colleges, Presidency College being one of them. So I graduated from there, but it's it's very important at this point in time to make a distinction of the kind of leftism that I was involved in. 
So you had the Communist Party of India, uh, Marxists, the CPIM, which was in power in West Bengal, uh, and and its student wing or Pacha Party, like I say, every every big political party has their student swings, right? So the student wing of uh, uh, of, of theirs is the SFI or the Students Federation of India. I was never a part of that. In fact, we were strongly opposed to this sort of state-backed uh, communism, and we had our own independence consolidation. was a uh, was a small party that we had, and uh, it was we we focused on pluralism and uh, you know leftism. So it was it was a youthful adventure in the you know intellectual thought and intellectual action uh, and i was you know i fought the elections i even had to stay underground when when i won along with my friends because the sfi would always try to you know capture us and not let us uh, you know get elected on the day that you had to present yourself on in the college so that was interesting but i was part of what i call the independent left then from there I went to the Asian College of Journalism, which is deeply, I mean, associated with the Hindu and the Hindu of Enram's time, not, uh, not, uh, you know, not when others have been editors. So Mr. Enram was still the editor. So you can imagine the kind of influence that I was growing, uh, growing up in so much so that, that after my journalism uh, diploma, uh, I went to I went and worked with CNN News 18 and Times now and actually quit to return to the academia because I thought that this is too capitalist. Okay, so I was that hardcore left that I wanted to. That one of the reasons, in fact, for quitting the media was, uh, you know, was was the reason that you know this is I thought that this is too capitalist. It is backed by private money. It's backed by private capital, so it cannot be for people's good. So that that is how, uh, what I should say, that is how stereotypical my thinking had become. That is how, uh, you know, um, that is how focused to a very bad degree my uh, uh, my my intellectual development had become. Although I I was a pretty decent student. Um, okay, I was always a very decent student, and I mean, if you are left and if you are hardcore left, you are you will actually score much more in your examinations than you do very well. Uh, so, so doesn't surprise that you know I was when I look back, I I'm really embarrassed at the kind of things that I thought and the kind of the the certainty that I had about the world around me and how it should be. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that was that and I quit and I went to another place, which is the Tata Institute of Social Sciences for a bit of a research assistance job and there too, things were not different. Uh, okay, so here too, you were reading the same old, either the Communist Manifesto or, uh, you know, the Annihilation of Caste was of course an important text that we were reading at this point in time, but then, you know, you really don't get into the problematic portions of the annihilation of caste. I mean, you've already, I mean, you've already exalted that book as well to, to the status of a communist manifesto, something that has to be only like 100% page after page only looked at with, um, you know, devotion almost, uh, not, not look at it, uh, not engage with it critically at all. So, but after that, I went into the Delhi School of Economics, and this is when my stint or my tryst with uh, liberalism actually started. And uh, I was very, very, 
I was upset that I thought, okay, here's I've come to the Delhi School of Economics to study sociology, and it's not quite uh, Marxist. I mean, uh, why are we talking about post-structuralism and things? I mean, why are we not focused on Marx, Marx, and Marx? Uh, okay, so because uh, so that was so that was the reason that after my MA and my MPhil that I went to JNU. Uh, okay, for my PhD, uh, and uh, because I thought that I needed to be in the mecca of Marxism, because everywhere else Marxism has been spoiled. Okay, it's not being done properly. So I'm sure that if I land up in JNU, I'm going to get the original Marxism and quality Marxism, and I'm going to be able to uh, make a lot uh, out of Marxism there. So with great hope, I landed up in JNU. By the way, uh, just just uh, in order to you know, uh, I mean, if anyone's listening and if anyone wants to check back on all that I've said, there's uh, Ashoka University now hosts a site called the Hoot thehoot.org so if you google my name and if you google the hoot you will come across my writings between uh, 2010 and let's say 2014 15 2010 and 2016 and you will see how how marxist these writings were primarily you know commentary on politics on education commentary on the media and post 2016 that is when i joined gnu things start changing gradually and uh, because the things i actually see things uh, and uh, they they disappoint me even more greatly uh, and and uh, let's go to the next slide and i'm going to tell you what these things were so i joined jnu in january 2016 uh, and uh, in february 2016 of course there was that infamous incident uh, where uh, where Although, I mean, let's let's give the longest hand to the left and uh, where they claim that slogans such as Bharat Tere, Tukde, Honge, then and then and then, they were never raised, okay? So even if we accept that these slogans were never raised, I, on, thankfully, on that particular day, I was not on campus. I was staying somewhere else because I knew there was trouble. Uh, so even if we, uh, you know, give it that, uh, you know, such slogans were based, I always felt that why are, I mean, why is it that uh, uh, people are being so defensive about this? Why don't you say that it's not a matter of whether this was raised or whether this was not raised, whether this was edited by some TV channel or whether it was not edited by TV channel? What is your position on, on such a slogan? That's the point. I mean, do you condemn it if it was raised or whether it was raised or not is a different matter altogether because there's a, I mean, there is a certain number of people who say that this was raised and this on the face of it obviously appears to be extremely, it, it not only appears to be violent, it, it is also deeply unconstitutional, uh, right? So I was, I, was, I was wondering what the fuss is so much about. Why is it that everybody is trying to say that, no, 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 this slogan was uh, not raised, so we don't need to comment on it at all. Okay, so, I mean, but you you are supposed to be JNU, you, sh you, you are supposed to take a stand even <laughs> at things which are far away in Israel. Okay, so why don't you say something, okay, which has happened on your own backyard? Okay, so I mean, you think that you, you're talking about Latin America, talking about Israel, and everybody is, everybody is wrong, but something has happened on your back, in your backyard, and you suddenly say, oh, we're not going to talk about it too much because this is never, or this is not, not something that this was said, or this was said by outsiders who came from a particular university in Delhi from outside. 
so i i was wondering why is it that you don't you don't say it? do you does it mean that you actually support it but don't want to say it out so that was that was one thing that i was uh there i was uh, wondering about the second one was uh, you know at this point in time i was still pretty much in touch with my friends and i was uh, you know it's not like i had to become somebody different and i was not i was still not kept at an arms distance and i was also mixing with my friends at this point in time uh, the second one was when uh, you know something called uh, uh, azadi square was set up i mean i i really think it's uh, i mean we can talk about it at length that on some other day there was something called freedom square was set up and some eminent intellectuals came and gave lectures and they even invited uh, professor makaran paranjvi because he belonged to the other side which was graceful of them which is something that they usually don't do uh, you know to to address the students and i was surprised and aghast at you know how he was hooted how his talk was disrupted again and again and again and uh, this then started to make me think because if you go and look at uh, professor paranjvi's lecture or if you read through uh his lecture which has which has now been published i mean those jnu lectures have been published i think by harper collins i mean some some of the jnu professors got together and published published the lecture you would see that the man makes i mean he's a scholar and he makes great sense about what he's talking uh, so i i couldn't really understand why why the need to disrupt him why the need to hoot him why the need to silence him down so that was when you know i i was uh, i i started to feel disappointed uh, and dejected at at, uh, at 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 this turn of the left i kind of thought that uh, well i came here thinking that i'm going to do the real marxist stuff okay but uh, but the real marxist stuff doesn't really exist okay it's mostly about uh, you know a group of people who just don't want to discuss anything uh, other than what they believe to be true so they suffer from actually an overdose of certainty that's the problem that i realized and in uh, you know if if you are an intellectual whether you are an intellect intellectual or whether you are training to be one or whether you are a man or a woman uh, who you know uh, who has a job okay uh, the point is you each one of us is expected to uh, harbor a certain amount of uncertainty about what i know because that's precisely where i mean that's the engine of knowledge if you think that you know everything then you, your engine of knowledge will not be worrying it will be jammed because you already know everything and uh, and this is not this is not only a moral stance i mean the nature of knowledge is that it is given to change so each person knows that what i know today is not the truth and it's going to change over a period of time okay so i i felt that that amount of uh, there's an overdose of certainty amongst my friends uh, and that really ticked me off um, okay and i really thought that uh, either i need to go alone or i need to find a new bunch of friends uh, okay so which was when in 2016 and now i get into certain things that are not very well known outside jnu the 2016 february incident is very well known but in 2016 another thing happened which was the iron sharmila scholarship okay was handed over to the jnu su which is the jawaharlal nehru 
Students University Students Union by the JNUTA, which is the JNU Teachers Association. And the Iron Sharmila Scholarship has been set up by Professor Nandini Sundar, who is the partner of the Wires founder, Mr. Siddharth Bhardarajan, and who was also you know, one of the uh, organizers of the dismantling Hindutva movement. I have no problems with that. Everybody can, you know, organize such a, uh, you know, uh, organize such a, I, I call it a movement because it sounds like one, okay, <laughs> a conference, it was a conference. The only problem was that there was no, uh, you know, other view that was invited uh, in that conference. That's the problem, I think. I mean, whether someone's, uh, you know, whatever conference you organize, if you call it an academic conference, then it cannot be of all the same color uh, and whitewashed, uh, okay? So, but here, you know, so this was set up by uh, Professor Nandini Sundar and who was incidentally my teacher and I'm uh, respectful towards that relationship and I remain respectful towards the relationship. I mean, she was my teacher in Delhi School of Economics. But uh, what happened was this scholarship was given to the GNUSU, even though it violated all the rules of the scholarship. Why? Because I mean, the first rule was you had to be an applicant from a zone in India which was under conflict. So it could be a place where the AFSPA is there, okay, technically, uh, or it could be a place which has seen insurgency or terrorism. Okay, so previously people from Jammu and Kashmir had, for instance, got the scholarship, but sitting in New Delhi, how were you under, under conflict? One doesn't quite know. Second, this was for postgraduate students, whereas JNUSU, even if we go by the membership of JNUSU, JNUSU, first of all, is not an individual, it doesn't qualify as a student. Okay, secondly, even if we look at the structure of JNUSU, it has undergraduate components because the language schools, I mean, French, Chinese, Arabic, whatever is taught, I mean, there are undergrad students as well. So it, it is not a postgraduate constituent or a, a postgraduate constituency. Thirdly, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, thirdly and uh, uh, quite importantly, the problem, uh, just a moment, yeah, the problem uh, with, uh, uh, with, with, with the Iron Sharmila scholarship is that the, all these things were changed, okay, and, and thirdly, obviously, you had to make an academic contribution in the first place. How does JNUSU make a contribution? I mean, did it submit a paper? Did it conduct some sort of research? We don't know. Okay, so a scholarship was actually given to JNUSU by the, and this is not the, this is not, you know, uh, the, the, a thing done by a single professor, but it was handed over to the, handed over to the JNUSU by the JNUTA. Now, how did this happen? Okay, I, I was very surprised. And uh, I started doing uh, since then what I do, that is to write about all these things. So, you know, if you if you go on the if you as I speak, if you Google and just Arunodaya Majumdar Iron Sharmila, Sharmila scholarship, you'll immediately find that uh, there was a piece that I wrote highlighting this, that how is this that this happens? So we've heard about, you know, how the left kind of entrenches itself into the university by not taking into account uh, real scholarship by only, uh, you know, preferring ideological um in you know its own ideological followers it is deeply nepotistic all right and here is a is an open example which nobody has taken account of okay that the that the 2016 iron sharmila scholarship was 
Rato Rat made into an Iron Shamila award and given to JNUSU. How does this happen? Okay, did, did the JNUSU even apply? That's a question because the applications had to end by December. Okay, and this award was given sometime in February or March. So how did JNUSU even apply? All right, so this is this is something that I, I, I strongly hope that someone takes this up and actually looks up, uh, you know, into this. The next one was actually a Times of India editorial that I wrote, uh, you know, called uh, Lendi Slogan's Lousy Research, which turned the tide against me. And now I was pretty much there uh, everywhere. Everybody was, uh, you know, uh, not talking to me, actually, but talking about me amongst themselves that here comes someone, okay, who, uh, you know, who, who seems to have a good educational background, seems to have been on the left, but it's suddenly not you know, behaving like this person is, um, you know, is, is the left. So suddenly you would see people not talking to you. Okay. Suddenly uh, you would see your friends not recognizing you. Um, okay. Suddenly you would see if you are talking to someone, that person, you know, others are looking at that person. So that person has to immediately end your end the conversation with you and run away. Okay. I'm not saying that I didn't have friends. I had a set of four to five, five to six friends who didn't really bother about these things. But, you know, I had a huge group of friends who suddenly, you know, started, stopped talking to me and, and, and doesn't, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, I'm, I'm sad about that. I'm not saying it from uh, that point of view, but I'm saying, how is it that the left actually operates, okay, by, uh, if you dare to question what it says, if you dare uh, to, uh, you know, to, um, do not agree with it. So this lengthy slogan's lousy research was basically about the vice chancellor of JNU, uh, Professor uh, Mamidala Jagdesh Kumar, who who basically found out that in JNU some you know some of the professors in some departments had as many as twenty students were guiding twenty students for their PhDs. Okay, and this is this is in a sense I mean a professor cannot guide twenty students. How do you then ensure? the quality of the research that has been produced. But then JNU, frankly, has never been uh, very uh, interested in the quality of research production, but it is more interested in the quantity of cadres that you grow or the quantity of cadres that you can let out of that factory. So I think that was the reason why not much had been uh, spoken about, you know, in this um, you know, in this sphere, and then uh, you know, so he brought in that ratio, which 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 applies to all uh, universities that you know a, a, PhD, a professor can, to an extent, maximum eight PhD students you can uh, you know you can you can you can teach. Okay, so the 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 problem, the protests against this in JNU was that seat kam ho jayega. Okay, nobody is bothered about the fact that what happens to research, what happens to the quality of academic excellence that we are supposed to produce. Nobody is bothered about that. What they are bothered about is that the number of seats will drop, okay, and the number of students coming from disadvantaged backgrounds will further be further disadvantaged, although this is completely untrue because the ratio remains unchanged, the ratio of reservation or whatever that remains unchanged that you cannot play with it's just that if you have too many students it doesn't work and 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 along with this uh, you know along with this what was done was that in in gnu you had you went into an mphil phd 
so uh, what happened what also happened was that jnu previously during my time used to offer an mphil phd joint program so when you when you went in as an mphil student if you if you passed and if you scored a 60% which by the way is anybody scores a 60% in jnu that's also a big problem okay whereas if you are in calcutta university or delhi university from where i had come getting a 60% was really 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 tough okay uh, i mean maybe 10% of students in in the whole class would get a uh, 60% whether you are in calcutta university or in delhi university but in jnu it's 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 a liberal university as far as scoring is concerned so the pressure is not really there okay so the other thing was if you scored a 60% you would directly go into a phd which meant that if you if your chance of getting into jnu was during the mphil stage you literally had very little chance getting into jnu for the phd only if you had done your mphil from somewhere else and i was amongst the lucky few i mean i i made it to the political science department i made it to the sociology department as well and there was literally one seat in which i could compete so it's it's it can be that tough okay and this was being done away with and separate admissions for mphil and phd was being done and this also led you know to seat kam ho jayega and students will be discomforted i mean there's no there was absolutely no reckoning for the fact that seats i mean people were or students outside the university were already disadvantaged because if they hadn't got into jnu with an mphil then they had no chance okay the fourth thing was and by now things were full blown i was also in conflict with my department i was being called a fascist Uh, the usual you know the things that are uh, that are thrown uh, at you the usual mark although i don't know uh, i i frankly don't know, <laughs> know much about uh, you know when i became a fascist i, I mean <laughs> uh, yeah okay so so the thing was uh, you know uh, i i had pointed out and i just want to take you to uh, you know the next slide where there's a photograph that i want to show and this is what i uh, actually highlighted so you see this is of um, you know this is one of those romantic graffitis that are uh, painted that was painted on the walls of jnu and this is the library wall of jnu by the way and you see there's marx there's engels and there's lenin i mean those figures are perhaps i mean those figures are fine i mean they they wrote a lot they uh, you know i mean we need to read their books but there was also mao and stalin uh you know on those library walls and i was like uh, you know and um, there was a huge outcry at that point in time because uh, the vice chancellor had said that you know we can put a decommissioned tank on the campus of jnu in order to make the students uh, feel what war is and um, uh, you know what is uh, you know what is war the the gravity of wars be proud of the wars that india has won uh okay and and there was suddenly a talk of militarization of the campus violence on the campus and all of this and yet you have these two one is uh you know uh, the proponent of the uh, great proletarian cultural revolution and uh, the other one is uh, stalin of course the the architects of the gulags in soviet russia and together it is estimated uh, that that they killed more people than hitler has killed uh okay and yet i i am surprised that their their uh, you know posters were up on the walls uh, of jnu and incidentally you would not find many people who actually know actually know about the atrocities that these two men have committed on humanity so if we 
um, you know, and I'm surprised actually uh, because uh, you know, uh, even when I was growing up and uh, even when I was in college, I, I didn't know the number of people these people killed. Because just think about what we are taught even in school. You get to read Anna Frank's diary, right? You get to read Anna Frank's diary, and you have you have a personal account of how terrible Hitler was. But nobody gets to read Solstein's, for instance, the uh, you know the Gulag Archipelago. So you don't have personally, you are not taught what these, um, uh, you know, leftist tyrants uh, had, 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 had done to humanity and these posters were still up. So I pointed this out and this was at the height of the Doklam crisis, by the way, okay, where you have, uh, this was at the height of the Doklam crisis and you had Mr. Mao uh, smiling at us uh, from uh, uh, from uh, from the walls of JNU. So I, I always I thought that this is very ironical, and therefore I decided to write a piece on it. By after writing this, uh, you know, my uh, I had you know my uh, honeymoon with my friends was over. You know, now <laughs> there was a strong divide between who's a friend and who's not a friend. I was a declared fascist on campus. Uh, okay, so but but I was I was I you know I this was the time when I when I really thought that what do I want to do? Okay, do I do I fit in and remain what I uh, you know what I'm not or what? questions bother me or do I move out and chart my own path so I decided to move out and chart my own path and I came to Bangalore I got a job luckily and I started teaching and my uh, submission of my PhD is still due uh, so you know two more things and once I came came out of GNU and into Bangalore I saw that things are not really changing okay even if you look at the events of the last two years you will see exactly how the left in India behaves. Okay, so again, I wrote an article that Chinese autocracy should be called out. This was in the Logical Indian uh, over COVID-19. And this basically meant that you, you have like, uh, you have the communists who, uh, you know, or you have the leftists, uh, you know, who find out that intellectuals writing in you know all the digital platforms and all the main newspapers that give them a lot of voice okay and find out one article by any intellectual worth his or her salt who has actually said that the chinese did not allow okay proper investigation as to how the virus originated in china Okay, and it's a legit, it's a very, very legit research question. I mean, anybody would be asking that question, whether it originated in the markets, whether it originated in the lab, how did it originate? Okay, and they have stonewalled all efforts. I mean, even, uh, you know, an IIT Delhi professor, you know, published a fairly was his, 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 uh, his, uh, his, his article had been accepted for publication, but then it was rejected. Okay, so how is it that does does not does intellectual activity not get uh, stifled by these activities? Of course they do, but do you hear the left talking about it? No. So you actually have instances when you when you hear of things that the left stifles, that the left is nepotistic. Okay, you 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 struggle. You know there are so many incidences that you actually struggle to find out exact inc incidents. But I'm actually giving you the incidents where you know you can you can ask them some hard questions all right so did the left actually 
help in the research paper or, or has has it has it called out that no research has been allowed no although it's the most pressing question of our time right also has anyone spoken about the you know the india china conflict the sino indian conflict nobody you will not see anyone condemning chinese actions on the border although many of them you know will be will now be shedding copious tears on what's happening between russia and ukraine okay they will not spread the word when it is about tibet when it is about hong kong okay but but they will they will always have something to say when it's about jammu and kashmir when it's about palestine of course these things should should be said of course things should be said about jammu and kashmir things should be said about palestine right but you can't pick and choose it's not a garden that the left owns it's a garden that we all own and if you are being uh, you know if you are cherry picking then you will be called out so there is there are things that the left chooses and they, it picks up convenient things okay uh, that suits its ideology uh, right to be to be intellectual but unfortunately the intellectual tradition of india doesn't allow for this sort of intellectualism frankly okay and let's uh, move over to the next uh, slide yeah now this is again i said i am going to bring you some uh, some things okay that are not heard of outside jnu okay this is one of those this poster thankfully no longer remains this is a poster which was which was uh, just under this poster is the door the entrance door to my department and this is this is above uh, if this is above the uh, entrance door and i used to you know i used to look at it every time i used to enter sometimes i felt like tearing it off but i thought you know that's that's something that the left does okay it's it's not something that i would want to do uh but but have a look at this uh, you know you all you obviously you know yada yada dharma shlani bharati bharata you we know that very very important uh, shlok uh, from the gita that very important verse it uh, you know uh, it translated it is it is like every time there is a um, there is the the universe is in chaos or the universe is in or disorder i step step out and you know uh, i i you know and then i encounter Uh, this chaos and this disorder and bring about order out of this i mean of course this has you can treat this literally in the gita or you i mean the philosophical uh, uh, debates the philosophical interpretations of this need not be told i mean it is only something that we are we are actually too poor in india that we do not discuss religion in universities because if you go to cambridge if you go to oxford i mean i'm just taking i'm not saying that they are great by definition but i'm saying these are the great institutions that the left things are great okay you take princeton you take harvard you take stanford wherever you will always have departments of divinity studies or you will have departments of religion studies it's only in india that we don't have these okay as a result of this you can have this sort of a poster okay where obviously uh um, you know a tall politician is being depicted as krishna but he is krishna there's no doubt about it because notice that peacock feather on his crown okay the geeta is uh, in his left hand he is holding uh, the lotus in his hand and he is twirling the parliament uh, with his right index finger and he is um, you know he is uh, you know he is stepping on human skulls Uh, which is uh, i i was i was actually very surprised that uh, you know 
only this sort of an interpretation of the gita is possible in jnu because uh, frankly i mean see all sorts of interpretations are probably should be allowed in a, you know if if you are to be intellectually free okay but this is not intellectual freedom because this is the only sort of uh, interpretation which is um, uh, you know which is which is allowed and which is perpetrated uh, you know in jnu you try and do this with any other uh, book and uh, the heavens will obviously fall but uh, we allow this to happen uh, okay and uh, we don't ask questions and uh, uh, we don't ask what do you have only this interpretation of the gita what do you know about uh, hindu philosophy because this you know whether it is sanatan dharma whether it's our religious intellectual tradition we don't study it it's as simple as that it has been structurally it has been erased and it has been removed right since school till university okay you for instance i'll give you a very small example there's a lot of talk about the post structuralists today right so from foucault deleuze all the, the marxists are stuck at foucault Uh, okay then you know there's bart there's lacan there is levi strauss and all these french giants right and all of them actually take their work from uh, ferdinand de saussure's course in general linguistics which was uh, which was published in um, i think in the second decade of the 20th century but ferdinand de saussure actually takes most of his idea of general linguistics or or a branch a new subdiscipline which emerged called semiotics from the work of deeply influenced by the work of bhartahari and his vakyapadyam because sociors these sociors uh, phd was in sanskrit and this text was something that he deeply referred to and yet we don't claim okay that this is uh, you know this is there are obviously intellectual borrowings uh, that have gone uh, you know uh, that have gone uh, unsaid or that have gone unmarked but these sociors cannot be blamed for this perhaps because this book his book was published posthumously from his class lectures so we don't know if uh, you know the lack of uh, references to bhartahari is actually uh, desociors fault or those who published collected his uh, lectures and published them whether it's their fault uh, okay so i think so you know the structure of treating uh, and studying philosophy in india has been completely broken i mean its spine has been broken and unfortunately even now we are not doing much about it at all uh, okay so that's that's a hint perhaps and that's a plea to my uh, to my to my listeners and to whoever's there that we need to do we need, we need to do more and we need to claim Uh, reclaim our intellectual traditions it's 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 very important not only reclaim i mean it's not all in the past there there are flourishing things that are happening currently and uh, that is what i'm going to uh, talk about in my next uh, in my next slide yeah so i will rush through this a little bit uh, like i said so uh, you know so uh, by now i'm sure i've been able to point out what leaving the left actually meant so by now the divorce with left was more or less complete although i i must uh, i must say that i am very lucky to have a i have to have a few friends from the left to remain my friends and uh, you know i have 
uh, very great personal relationships with them although i don't know if many of them would want to be seen with <laughs> with me on the jdu campus because that would be they would get uh, ostracized okay so that, that's that's a problem uh, all right so uh, what have, what have i been up to after you know uh, leaving the left and i think this is if if, if uh, you know i you know i i invite suggestions on what more i could do or you know these are just for interactions if, if something if, if you want to know something about it so the one of the important things you know of of being you know in this in this structured uh, leftist sort of educational system is that you are, you need to in order to break out of it you need to engage in self study you know rather than group study okay your syllabus is telling you to do something your friends are reading particular texts but one must have Uh, the curiosity i won't say courage one must have the curiosity to just you know to look at other things second you know i i i think i have really gained a lot by make, by not making the mistake that the leftists make which is to, to i i actually read things that i thought are problematic okay and while reading them i actually came across things that the left themselves have written but don't talk about okay for instance if you read the peasant wars in germany by frederick engels okay who was marx's collaborator and who by the way was an industrialist we all know that so marx and and uh, it's it's not really talked about engels was a factory owner i mean not only a factory but one of the most important factories in england okay and where was he making that money from i mean there were no robots who were working in his factory but there were working class people who were working in his factory and what profits was he making was he was he a capitalist or was he what was he i mean it's 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 something that is not very well talked about and whenever something's not talked about it's important to scratch that surface the surface of it so i mean it's not known that engels actually i mean they will not talk about this text okay that the peasant wars in germany is something that frederick engels wrote and it actually shows how under martin luther who was a who was a religious figure the peasants organized okay and revolted against the church and the nobility so here you have religion literally acting as an ideology against capitalist exploitation and you have a similar example of it's it's these are essays written by kapil kumar and saurabh dube has cited it also in his subaltern studies also although he doesn't refer to them exclusively saurabh dube cites it kapil kumar writes about how the ramcharitmanas in the 1920s and the 1930s okay it becomes a revolutionary text by the interpretation of somebody called ramchandra baba and how the peasants fight colonial exploitation and colonial taxation policies okay by uh you know rallying uh behind ram so you have these you have these recurrent things that will not be taught to you because it has to be you know day in and day out the lie has to be repeated that religion is only the opium of the masses okay and that it has no active or it has no uh revolutionary potential okay whether revolutionary personal revolution or social revolution that completely it's a strict no no where they will not go so it's important to read them and find out what they are doing i can also talk about other studies but i'm running out of time so i'll i'll quickly move move over to the other things i have also been actively trying okay to understand what is it i mean okay fine the left has been 
in total control of education system that is changing with the NEPA hopefully uh, or the NEP that is hopefully changing but in the NEP I don't find even one mention of how we are going to the new knowledge that we are going to produce okay you 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 will focus on you know Indian knowledge besides Western but if your journals okay if your if 99.99% of your journals are either okay produced and edited by universities in the USA and the UK okay then how why would they act as gatekeepers why would they allow you to talk about what you want to talk about okay that's an that's a question that we need to think so we don't our universities do not have published publishing departments you have harvard university press you have cambridge university press you have oxford university press you have edinburgh university press but do you have a jawaharlal nehru university press you don't you had a calcutta university press but do you produce good books no that's a basic that's a major problem without publication without dissemination of knowledge if all your knowledge remains in your head and in interaction you will again be doing what you have been accused of doing which is to not write things down i mean if you write things down and you you cannot publish it then you are in deep trouble so i think there is an urgent need to establish scholarly journals for publication that's that's very important okay uh, second is i i i i mean i urge and i've been thinking about this that there's a great need to establish translation infrastructures so for instance the nep talks about you know that education in, in you know in your mother tongue and in your mother language all that is fine but how many languages can i learn can i you know i have learned bengali okay i can pick up sanskrit and maybe tamil also but what about telugu okay you in india you will always remain you know you will always remain short of the vernacular because the vernacular will always exceed you because it's we are so culturally and linguistically rich so therefore a centralized translation infrastructure needs to be you know needs to be formed so that we can know what everybody else is learning so that these uh, you know infrastructures can actually uh, you know uh, write uh, you know pub or translate in the official languages so that it's available for everyone to uh, see okay funding this is you know this has been spoken about a number of times and i will just skip it for want of time very importantly you know you have seen in recent times that iit delhi probably iit delhi is going to set up a campus in uh, dubai i think this is a very important point and what we need to do is we should gradually move away or at least today if you are if you are a scholar particularly uh, you know a research scholar or a established scholar whoever you are if you are in the education um, you know a, a profession all roads basically lead to the us and the us is not going to listen to you okay and i will i will briefly tell you what oriental modernism is and from there we can make it out the us is not going to listen to you nor is the uk going to have an empathetic ear for you so we need to change tack we actually need to look towards the east we need to look at the eastern economies we need to look at the far eastern countries with whom we have had cultural ties okay and we need to establish educational engagement with them because not only is it going to be intellectually productive but it is also going to be productive in terms of expanding okay uh, india's sphere of influence as it is called in strategic studies or in international relations 
and with with the way with things are in south asia with china and india i think that's a good thing to do so this is the thing that i wanted to tell you which is see the left one of the one of the ways in which it works is that it identifies itself as left but whoever doesn't identify with it it will call them the right and the right has a very bad connotation with people like mussolini people like uh, hitler i mean obviously uh, stalin and mao have been left out of it uh, because of reasons that i just discussed but you don't want to be right you don't and more importantly you do not wish that somebody else defines what you are so if you ask me who am i if i'm not the left i would say i'm non left i would say i'm bharatiya i could even say i'm intellectually queer right i mean there is so much that you are talking about about queerness this that which is very great but please i mean let us engage in intellectual queerness as well okay let's be you know let's let's talk about different things we don't need to pigeonhole ourselves to a particular ideology just because the left has decided to do it for itself okay do not give them the right to define who you are that's very important i think whatever we have discussed uh, so far i think one of the most important things is to understand how this is a continuation okay of the colonial policy and how this is leftism is basically a cultural continuation of colonial rule okay or colonial logic let's say let's not call it colonial rule but it's a, it's a continuation of colonial logic and why do i say that so in the 1970s 1978 if i am not mistaken to be precise uh, okay edward said actually writes a book called orientalism okay and in that he basically says how is it that you ruled over the i'm i'm simplifying it how is it because of want of time how is it that you ruled over other people okay of course you were exploiting them economically of course you were exploiting them militarily but you also needed to justify to the rest of the world okay as well as justify to yourself that this sort of rule is actually required okay so what did they do they said they spoke of civilizing mission and the white man's burden we know that but how would you how would you engage in a civilizing mission how would you talk about a white man's burden for that you needed to draw a picture of those who you were exploiting to be less than you okay to draw a picture of those who who uh, you know who are exploiting to be less than you so that you can you can then prove that you know these people need us oh okay okay these people for instance pagans was heathen okay worshippers of many gods right so that i mean how is that bad you would wonder but it, at that point in time to the christian european colonial eye it was something that was bad okay so one of the primary ways in which the colonial policy worked was through orientalism that is to make you seem bad okay the other one was to offer yourself as the good guy okay and this is where modernism comes in so even when we talk about the word modern now it appears as something positive okay it appears as uh, in fact i remember a book starting with with the quote that it it sees at the end of i mean uh, on the back of a lorry which says that unhe bhi to pata chale ki hum bhi modern hai okay i think it's a book by patricia oberoi which starts like that which basically says that being modern is is a good thing all right but where does this being modern come from 
being modern basically comes from the colonial, again, a colonial policy. Mod modern, being modern basically meant two things. One was you went into industrial capitalism, okay? Okay, capitalism, fine, you can't, I mean, the world, I mean, world economies have been capitalist. I mean, there's no way out of it, but industrialization, reckless industrialization at the, you know, uh, you know, which has, which has led to climate change, right? I mean, we need to talk about these things. Who introduced it? Okay, just because it works for our material demands and our material goals doesn't mean it's right. Okay. Second is a deep disgust for religion. Okay. And actually not talking about the close interaction between religion and science. Now, this is something the moment I say religion and science, we, we tend to go back to the Greeks, okay, or to the ancient Indians who were at the same time doing science and religion. No. But the father of modern science, Newton himself, was a deeply religious man. I mean, the point was, I mean, not only the not only was it that he actually believed that there could be a philosopher's stone and he was working in the dungeons to, you know, to, to find the philosopher's stone, but he actually believed that the reason or what he was searching for, his laws of motion, and this is all documented. You can, uh, you know, uh, I think either Oxford or Cambridge has that, uh, has 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 that uh, Newton's papers and Newton's uh, documents. Okay, where you can see that Newton actually thought of himself to be a man chosen by God. Okay, to discover his rules on how everything you know on Earth acts so smoothly. Why is there day and night on regular intervals, and why you know? So he was he was he was fascinated. Okay, by this by this orderliness of the planet, and he said that there must be someone who is doing this and i am the chosen person to discover these things okay so his motivation for physics were deeply religious physics and mathematics okay and this is again something that you will i mean is is not public knowledge because you know religion is something bad we are going to going to only show that side of newton which talks of him as a physics master or something and you take any um, you know, religious, um, you, you take the figures of Acharya Jagadish Shantra Bose, for instance, or um, Ramanujan, the mathematician, for instance, there's work by Ashish Nandi, which, talk, which discovers their religious side. Very interestingly, Rene Thomas has very recently published uh, an article that talks about the religious motivations of scientists in IISC in Bangalore, the Indian Institute of Science, okay? How they, how, you know, how religion and science exist among scientists okay and that's like recent like two or three year old or five year old data okay so this is you know this is something these things will not fit into the structure of the modern because the modern okay is based on the following four principles number one it has a compartmentalized and evolutionary approach of history that is the past is always bad and the present is very good and the future is something where we can go and be better. So the past must be looked down upon. Okay, so that's why, the, I mean, this is something that the West can do very easily. The America, America doesn't have a past and the little past that they have is obviously of colonization. So the US can always say the past is bad because it holds true for them. Okay, Europe can also say the same thing because if they look back at their past, okay, there's the, there, there are the crusades, right? So, I mean, they have done terrible things with religion. All right, and they want us or the rest of the world to share the burden of their guilt by saying that you know it's history is always an evolutionary approach. The past is definitely bad. Today is good, and the 
next stage is going to be better so and then there's the obsessive hostility towards religion okay there's this division between science and religion which doesn't hold true because i've just named some of the greatest figures in the world of science i mean not only from newton uh, but we are also talking about iisc which in the global rankings is probably in the top 100 somewhere in the 80s uh, right where scientists are religious now what can you do about it so either you change your knowledge because there is empirical evidence that that, that talks otherwise or you don't talk about the empirical evidence which is something that the left does okay and Renny thomas's article by the way is uh, is there in a you can google scholar him right now and you will find that it's it's not in some any other uh, uh, journal it's in it's in a fairly well known uh, you know uh, in a well known journal so there's this obsessive hostility towards religion uh, also and there's materialism above abstraction that's obviously whatever you know whatever gives you material satisfaction in the immediate whatever you can see okay like you're blowing up mountains okay you are um, you know you are digging deep fissures into the earth right so you are gaining control over nature by doing all these things so you find that to be modern i mean imagine the amount of power that one must have felt when the nature that you were scared of the lightning that you thought was religion you were actually reproducing that on earth and you started to think that okay now i have that power okay so this is uh, you know materialism over abstraction and legitimization of violence okay some sorts of violence is legitimate like the violence that you carry out on your uh, on the natives okay is is legitimate because they need to be schooled they need to be disciplined and if you see i mean if you go to the next uh, i mean let's stay on this slide sorry if you see these principles of modernism is something that even the left follows okay so compartmentalized and evolutionary approach to history how is it so in their sense of history is that at the very beginning there was primitive communism the world was communist okay then came war societies or tribal societies okay there was uh, there were tribalism there there was something of a mere their fisticuffs used to happen but it was not that bad okay then there was a worsening situation and it became feudalism further worsening situation capitalism okay then there will be further i mean there will be some sort of a good thing dictatorship of proletariat in the next historical epoch which of course is a legitimization of violence because you call for the open annihilation of the bourgeoisie okay which has led to again like i said stalin's russia and communist china mao's china so there is legitimization of violence that that you do and finally there will be scientific communism or the real communism in in society so again in the case of modernism you have things become uh, becoming bad to uh, good whereas in the communist scheme things become bad 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 worse worse and then suddenly there will be you know a revolution and things will change so you have that evolutionary approach of towards history obsessive hostility towards religion modernity you know it talks only about science tries to erase the religious motivations behind, behind behind science or you know alongside science how religion and science actually are not that separate it tries tries to erase that you know classical marxists obviously will always talk about religion as the opium of the masses okay legitimization of violence i already gave you the example the native needs to be schooled on the other hand you have the dictatorship of the proletariat you have the class enemy who you have a legitimate right to go out against and and therefore uh, bully or even kill so this is you know this is this is i 
at the initial stage, I had started with a question that how is it that, you know, I came from leftist Kolkata to liberal Delhi and both are at loggerheads, right? Because economically, they don't agree. One wants a certain kind of an economic environment. The other wants the opposite kind of an economic environment, whereas markets and states and their interactions and concern. But culturally, culturally, if you see, they follow those four principles. They follow those four principles, and that is precisely why this hyphenation has emerged between them. Okay, and this is, uh, you know, this is what I wanted to say. I think I'm I'm right on time. Uh, and uh, thank you very much. I would like to end here. If there are any questions, I would love to take them. Namaste, Arunodaji. Very insightful. Uh, uh, updates and insights. So uh, my question was, uh, you know, whenever a nationalistic person talks about something which is, uh, you know, pro-nation and uh, pro-right wing, then there is a usual argument by the leftists and they call it, it is jingoism and then try to, you know, shut them down by, by their, you know, uh, manifesto or by their, you know, template. So is there any ready reckoner for the people to, you know, uh, give them back a tooth and nail. Is there any ready reckoner which we can keep handy and, you know, press where the where the things well, will be? Yeah. Well, I think the ready reckoner is that they, they don't understand the meaning of nation and nationalism in the first place, okay? Because nation and nationalism is very different from jingoism. Jingoism is a hyper, being hypersensitive about uh, one's nation. Uh, okay, and uh, uh, I, I don't think India at all falls into that category. Uh, so, but to, so you, if you want to have a ready reckoner, you would probably want to, um, you know, read, um, or you would probably want to look at a few works on the idea of, uh, you know, on the idea of nation. And in this case, I would certainly, uh, you know, uh, suggest the works on Sri Aurobindo, the works by Sri Aurobindo on national culture in India. So there's his book on the Renaissance. It's called Renaissance in India or something like that. Uh, okay, uh, you could read that book. The other one would be Makaran Paranjpe's, uh, you know, edited works of uh, Vivekananda. Uh, because Vivekananda's works runs into volumes, okay, and it's very, very difficult. You can spend a whole lifetime talking about it. Uh, so I would say that uh, uh, Professor Paranjpe's um, uh, edition, uh, edited, uh, you know, selected readings of Vivekananda is a good place to start. Really good talk, sir. I wanted to ask about the fact that they are so set on the separation between religion and science. How did they end up having divinity departments in their universities then? And if India people in India were so influential who uh, wanted to set up India in a certain way, emulating the West. Why did they not do the same in India? Oh, that's, I think the second question is pretty fascinating, but I'll, I'll try and answer the first one. I'm not sure what the history of uh, the setting of divinity studies departments in, uh, you know, uh, in, in the university, in the, in, in the universities in the West were. I am presuming that, you know, Oxford and Cambridge are very, very old universities. Uh, so I'm presuming they already had divinity studies departments, okay? And the U.S. was just an extension of Europe, uh, you know, through the, uh, you know, through the process of settler colonization. 
and when they set up universities probably you know they were continuing with the tradition of having religious studies departments in uh, in the west you know this is this is my educated guess i haven't read any book on this or i haven't i'm not uh, you know i i i'm not conversant with uh, uh, the history of uh, departments of religion religion or divinity studies in the west why did we not do it okay for that i would actually refer you to a book uh, called um, rakesh batapyal okay he is also a professor in jnu of media studies and history he has come out with a book called the making of jnu and there you would you would see how the education you, you see in the 1970s uh, roughly 1971 if i am not mistaken india and soviet russia you know uh, was we 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 kind of uh signed uh, the treaty of friendship and uh, the with that the communist ideology's takeover of the indian state was pretty much uh sealed and uh, you know if you look at the ministers um you know uh, if you look at nehru himself he was deeply influenced by socialist thought and those who came after it were you know i i mean leftist of some hue or the other and for all of them one thing that matters is that religion is the opium of the masses so you you literally had no political initiative or you had no uh, you know no favorable policy who would actually that would actually engage in the study of religion in uh, in an intellectual and uh, philosophical manner as a result of which which it has often been reduced uh, to uh, to ritual and but however uh, i mean there's a point of uh, you know there's uh, there's a positive point that i must mention and which is if you look at publishers if you look at private institutions so one of them is motilal banarasi das publishers for instance there you would find a lot of scholarly work still taking place and will uh, you know they publishing very very good books on uh, 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 on on religion and indian intellectual tradition so motilal banarasi das is one place the other place that i also follow is ramakrishna mission institute of 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 culture so you could you could look up swami medhananda uh, and because he is a brilliant scholar okay uh, a contemporary of jonathan kennedy and uh, uh, i mean uh, he he you know educated again uh, i mean the left would of course like right like him looking at his bio because he's educated in oxford cambridge and his phd in philosophy is from university of california berkeley uh but then he he will say things which will not be music to their ears <laughs> okay so you could so a lot of private places uh, you know private institutions have of course uh, managed to uh, you know continue the tradition of uh, religious discourse in india although i think i've been able to give you uh, a quick uh, you know insight on why this was not possible um, you know uh, in the public university system in india it was amazing uh, by the way uh, were you ever called a right wing reactionary oh yeah a number of times okay <laughs> okay i had a similar journey there as yours but not through educational institutes but via corporate okay. it is much more amazing mm-hmm. uh, i live in bangalore as well maybe we okay. can connect sometime sure uh, i don't have a question i just want to add uh, one of my points over here and, mm-hmm. uh, i'm not a researcher uh, but uh, i believe that uh, leftist people it's not that they don't want to talk about religion and they don't they just believe in that saying opium religion is the opium of the masses they use it uh, to take people away from whatever belief system they have 
but i think it is particularly very very uh, targeted towards uh, pluralistic religions like hinduism mm-hmm. uh, if, I, if i can call that or sanatan dharma um because i believe that the entire leftist philosophy is based on the binaries and yeah. that is why that is why they want to they just can't deal with a pluralistic you know uh, belief system like sanatan dharma that is why special antagonism uh, towards that and and uh, that is what my experience has i just wanted to add that i mean i i think you 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 use an excellent word which is very frequent in the lectures that i uh, that i give in the university which is which is binary it is true i mean modernism is actually based on a binary and so is leftism uh, okay and i mean if we meet we can actually discuss this in greater detail i mean one of the best binaries i mean one of the most uh, fundamental binaries of leftism is you know this uh, uh, working class and bourgeois divide okay whoever is not working class or bourgeois is you know uh, is either petty bourgeois or a sack of potatoes i mean i mean completely rejected so i always tell my students that the first polarizer of society is no other person than karl marx because because he refuses to see any other economic class okay and he divides society neatly into two halves which is the bourgeois and the proletariat and i then tell them you know go out into the streets okay and ask the person who is selling uh, you know something at the traffic signal okay and ask the hairdresser on the traffic signal if the hairdresser would change his place with the fellow who is uh, selling books uh, on at the traffic signal they won't although they both belong to the working class if we go by marxist scheme of things okay but they won't this is because society is not divided into two classes it's just it it cannot be imagined like that okay it's just for the purpose of polarization yeah so binary is a very good word recently there was a lot of flag in created in the left wing when the uh, when i guess professor pandit was appointed as the vice mm-hmm. chancellor of gnu and the bedrock on which their argument was based upon was that she doesn't fit into the culture and an academic uh, what's a tradition or environment of gnu so there would be a friction between students and vc so what are your comments on that well uh, see i frankly i'm not very i'm i'm sitting in bangalore for the last two two and a half years i am not i'm i'm slightly off campus for a for a long time so uh, you know um, i i am i'm not qualified enough to comment uh, on on that comment but then i mean to take what you are saying i mean who defines what the culture and ethos of gnu is i mean that's that's the first question and and uh, that i i think i i think if if these comments are made uh, i i think they need not because those who make these comments uh, are not credible people i mean i'll tell you the same set of people i if you know if this comment you know and if you are saying it must be true the same set of people actually said that covid is a conspiracy by populist right wing governments to lock up people in their homes and uh, do whatever they like okay so so it's high time that we don't take these comments very seriously because they, these are not intellectual academic or informed comments these are these are comments of uh, you know hate and um, uh, you know these are basically comments of hate to put people down by uh, uh, by 
not so smart uh, people so we should we shouldn't react to them arunoday i really enjoyed your class because uh, you know i actually was a journalist but a tech journalist and then uh, i volunteered in the orbindo um, ashram when my daughter started studying there so my um, introduction to humanities or you know history and all of that is through sri orbindo aha uh-huh. you know and of course right. and now i'm doing history in um, in the history curriculum for an igcse school for right. class 8 right. and um, you know anyone who's learned history formally i have a huge clash with and i never know where the thing is coming from you know mm-hmm. where yeah. the resistance is coming from yeah. because yeah. you know we're teaching school kids and what we're teaching is well researched but extremely basic questions to help them understand what their country is all about where they're coming from mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. their place mm-hmm. but your you know your the way you broke things down like mm-hmm. you know for example i would have very difficult time to say that history cyclical to me that's so obvious mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah and uh, uh, things like for example renaissance you say agricultural revolution somewhere now from journalism i know that a traditional indian farmer mm. you know thousands of years produced more and traded mm. so you now you know it's like can't you see i mean like we drawing parallels and uh, okay now th- that's what i wanted to tell you but the question that i have to ask is as a mother my daughter's taken humanities okay and i see her taking psychology sociology and design and i'm kind of afraid that she's going to get caught in this thing because they don't really understand they don't mm-hmm. understand i mean it took me a while to understand mm-hmm. you know because i used to think um you know i'm a science student so i used to think humanities people are intellectual so you can say whatever you want i mean it took me a long while to understand the resistance you know <laughs> um because i i saw that uh, i mean it was so bizarre because we were in an ashram school where people came for the liberal thing and then they would uh, kind of pass night remarks on the ashramites and teachers saying oh these are saffronites don't take what this is seriously yeah yeah but you know you've come you you if you were left then you should have gone into a government school with 50 kids in a class Mm-hmm. you know this was an ashram school funded by the devotee anyway now the question that i want to ask you is are scholars like you who've understood this thing is there a movement that you see to indianize psychology sociology or you know to create these kind of humanities in the indian framework mind yeah it's a brilliant question because uh, i don't know where to start because i have just been uh, reading uh, freud and freud's correspondence with girindra shekhar bosch who was uh, the first psychoanalyst of india uh, okay in the 1930s i was reading his works uh, also shri aurobindo's uh, there's someone called indra sen uh, all right who actually uh, writes about uh orobindo shri orobindo psychology and indrosen was a professor of psychology at delhi university so it's it's not coming from uh, you know uh, it's it's basically coming from a professor in a university so uh, i think uh, there and and if you take sociology there there are the works of uh, you know uh, uh, you know there are just so many works okay uh, there is uh, radha komal mukherjee there is uh, then there is vinoy kumar 
there are there are so many gs gurie of course uh, you know and all of them have been you know condemned uh, to to the past uh, by by saying that these are you know saffronites or uh, they talk about religion in sociology which must not be talked about although when the west talks about religion for instance clifford geertz okay we lap it up it's even there in our syllabus okay but we will not read our uh, indian authors because we we suffer from that colonial hangover even they even till date having said that to indianize well you know something if i wish it could be it could be done and i'm sure that uh, you know uh, it is being done i am someone who is not yet a full scholar i am still training as an academic and uh, i i mean i would of course if if there is something like this going on and i'm sure something like this is going on i would love to contribute to it it's just that i don't know where these things are happening um maybe within some time we'll get to know and if we can just get in touch uh, i would love to actually uh, you know talk about these things more so vidya ji i don't know if you are listening but if you can just inculcate the kids to think not in terms of binary but in terms of at least three i think you know they will become open because i have seen that it is the binary thing it is just which we see very often in our society which is the problem Arun Odeji, just a last comment from Aditi ji, and she wants to know your thoughts upon it. She says, "I feel calling ourselves conservatives is just as inaccurate as calling ourselves right wing." Yeah, absolutely. Owing to the particular uh, origin and context within which this ideology uh, arose, changed over time, and the framework it's being used within now. Please share your thoughts as to whether this term is appropriate or not to describe in the Indian context. No, I I don't think any term which is foreign, uh, you know, uh, and and uh, this conservative liberal, I don't think it fits into the Indian context because just like Indian society, Indian intellectual thought is also extremely pluralistic. Okay, extremely pluralistic or and plural rather. Uh, so you know, uh, this term that has you know emerged somewhere else, and as you rightly point out. Uh, you know is uh, you know is it has a different context and has a different intellectual background i think if we try to put it on us we'll try to fit into that concept rather than that concept accurately describing uh, who we are so i think uh, let the left uh, if if it is if it is okay uh, the left the left left identify themselves as the left but whoever is non left i think should be free to choose what uh, what uh, you know what uh, what uh, words to use to identify themselves like i said non left bharatiya it could even be conservative or right wing some people may actually feel that no i think what what the word right actually describes me good describes me well or the word conservative describes me well so there should actually be freedom to be what you want to be and to think the way you want to think as long as a, as the such thought is rigorous and based on solid argument not fantasy 